You are listening to A Scary State, a podcast where every week we talk about all things scary in your state, from killers to haunted locations, cryptids to urban legends, and everything scary in between. We're two friends who share a passion for haunted stories and true crime, and you never know what scary secrets your state holds. So Lauren, yes, Nora, let's get scary. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nora. And welcome to our very first episode. This is very exciting. We've been in the works for this for quite a while. Yeah, and we can't wait to share some of the stories that we've already researched. Um, Lauren has been wanting to do this podcast for years, and she recently asked me to join, so of course I said yes. Um, And we are just so excited to get started. I'm so happy you said yes. I was so nervous you were going (laughs) to say no. Well, okay, honestly, you built it up you built it up so much like in the car. <laughs> I thought you were going to like ask me if I wanted to stay in a haunted house or something with you. Well, that'll happen one day. <laughs> no, so. it won't. <laughs> I was like, "Oh gosh, I'm going to have to tell her no." Like I just had this gut feeling that you were going to ask me to stay somewhere haunted. And then when you asked me to do this podcast, I was like, "Oh my gosh, Lauren, yes." <laughs> well, so. for the haunted, we'll start off small. We'll go visit some creepy locations and then maybe stay in a we can do a haunted hotel. I'll consider it. Oh, with elevators? <laughs> no. We will not take any elevators. All right. So for today, we decided to start with Virginia because both Nora and I are currently in Virginia, so it only felt fitting. So I have a couple of fun facts I'm going to tell you about Virginia. Wow. So Virginia was nicknamed, or is nicknamed, the Old Dominion, joined the Union on June 25th, 1788, and became the 10th state in the U.S., so one of the original 13 colonies. It's believed that Virginia got its name from Queen Elizabeth I of England, who was also known as the Virgin Queen, so Virginia, Virgin. Um, Some fun laws that I found in Virginia are that in Waynesboro, Virginia, it is illegal for a female motorist to drive her car along Main Street unless her husband is walking in front of the vehicle waving a red flag in his hands. I don't think that's good anymore, especially on International Women's Day. We can drive cars (laughs) if we want. Um, Children also cannot trick-or-treat on Halloween. It is illegal to tickle women, and Virginians Mm. cannot spit on seagulls. So now to kind of the more spooky aspects of Virginia. There have been five identified serial killers and one unidentified serial killer. All of those we may cover later. Mm. And per the FBI's definition from Wikipedia, a serial killing is defined as a series of two or more murders committed as separate events, usually but not always, by one offender acting alone. And on a sad note about that, according to research from Radford University and Florida Gulf Coast University, Virginia is one of the top 15 states with the largest number of serial killer victims at 238 since 1900. Um, There are also 170 sites in Virginia that have experienced and documented some form of paranormal activity. So we have a couple of those today, a couple killers, serial killers we might talk about. I'm Um, getting scared already. (laughs) So, Nora, what are you covering today? So, tonight I am covering the Southside Strangler. I have never heard of them. I had not heard of this person either, and I was shocked at how, like, close in proximity. Oh, my Lord. How close in proximity. Sorry, that's Lauren's dog. um, This person struck to where we live. Oh, geez. So I guess I'll just jump right into it. Go for it. I'm ready. Cool. So before I actually really jump in, I just want to kind of 
give a heads up, um, this story does jump around a lot between different time frames and locations. Um, I really tried hard to break it up for you guys. I'm going to kind of specify the years and names to make it clear. And yeah, I'm just, oh, I, I also want to mention that um, when I say male bodily fluid, it's because I don't want to say the other word. I'm not going to be forced to say that. So <laughs> you can you just use your imagination to what that is. I mean, whichever you prefer. Nora. <laughs> Okay, we're going to start by talking about the murder of Susan Tucker. On December 1st, 1987, in Arlington, Virginia, which is about five miles southwest from Washington, D.C., and about five miles from where we are in Virginia. Very close. Yeah. A woman named Susan Tucker was brutally murdered in her home. Um, Susan was found dead and lying across her bed. Um, She was nude and partially covered by a sleeping bag when police found her. And when she was found, she had already been dead for several days. Oh my gosh. I know. Police also found her front door ajar and the contents of her purse were spilled all over the floor. That is terrifying. I know. And like, I just, you know, it's so hard to, like when you're researching this, it's really hard to like, it's just hard to do sometimes because it was, I felt for her. I mean, I've never experienced anything close to that, but it was just so hard to read about. And especially when you think of how it's near your state and in the state Mm -hmm. you live in, which is what makes it extra, you know, hitting close to home. Yeah, exactly. So the detective assigned to this case, this murder of Susan Tucker, his name was Detective Joe Horgus, and he had a tough job ahead of him because the murderer had worn gloves at the crime scene, um, and everything was wiped clean as far as fingerprints on surfaces, door handles, the windows, everything, he wiped it clean. And it rained on the night of Susan Tucker's murder, and he still cleaned the door, cleaned his footprints. The fact that he was so meticulous showed the detective that this person was experienced and that this was not his first time breaking into a home. Oh, geez. Yeah, that was one of the first things. I guess you'll get to it if he's Hmm. done this before, if this was his first act. (laughs) We will see. So, following the murder of Susan, everything from her home was taken to the forensics lab for analysis. The most important piece of evidence, pieces of evidence at the crime scene were the ropes and knots used to strangle Susan. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So when detectives saw the rope and knots, they realized immediately that they had seen this scene before. In a murder case three years earlier in Arlington, practically down the street from the murder of Susan Tucker, a woman named Carolyn Ham was murdered in almost the exact same way. How did I literally not have <clears throat> any idea about I these? know. Like, how scary is that? When you said you were doing something in Virginia, I was expecting, you know, Southern Virginia, not Mm -hmm. very close, but this is right around the corner. Yeah, especially since this person is called the Southside Strangler, I was figuring, like, it would be Southern, I don't know, Southern Virginia. Yeah. And he definitely started right here in Arlington. So, three years before the murder of Susan Tucker, a woman named Carolyn Ham was murdered. And she was a woman living alone in a quiet neighborhood of Arlington where murder was very rare. And tragically, someone broke into Carolyn's home and she was raped and tied up. Except this time, she was hanged from the indoor entry of her garage, and that's where police found her. Can I just tell you, home invasion is one of the scariest things for me. I know. I absolutely hate it. It terrifies me like anyone can attest if I am in my house I am checking the doors multiple times before I can go to bed like Mm -hmm. big fear yeah and Carolyn was living alone 
So the fact that, you know, they didn't find her right away, it was just, I mean, that's so insane. When police got there, they also found that a piece of cord had been cut from the Venetian blinds and a knife was on the floor. So already a pretty similar scene to the first murder, or I guess to this to the later murder, because the Carolyn Ham mur- murder happened three years previous. Okay, I that's was just how, about to ask that. Yeah, that's how they frame. caught that connection. I mean, good thing they caught that connection with all those years in between. I know, yeah. So Deanne Dabbs, and I'm sorry if I said her name wrong, but she is a forensic scientist, and she told the show Forensic Files while discussing this case, that it is actually not common at all to see serial killers use ropes and ligatures to kill victims. I wonder why that is. I'm thinking that, honestly, it's probably just too much effort. I mean, because you hear about it a lot with some other serial killers. If they have their MO with string, well, I guess strangling would be more hands, but if they have it with ropes, anything like that, it's like Mm -hmm. what they go off of, what their MO is. Yeah. Well, it seems like another thing that that made this like these two cases kind of stick out to to the detective was that the way that he tied the knot was really similar. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if Deanne Dabbs meant in general or like maybe specifically the type of knot he was using, but it just wasn't common to see in her career. So Okay, wow. Yeah. Despite the similarities between the 1984 case of Carolyn Hamm and then the 1987 case of Susan Tucker – a man named David Vasquez had already confessed to the murder of Carolyn and was serving 35 years in prison for it. Uh-oh. Yeah, so it's like, okay, Detective Horgus, who is now in 1987 investigating the murder of Susan Tucker, questioned Vasquez anyways about the Carolyn Ham murder. Well, because, yeah. Yeah, because he was like, he couldn't get over like the similarities. And after interviewing Vasquez, Detective Horgan said about the interview, quote, He didn't seem to know a damn thing, which is crazy. Like, wouldn't detectives who initially interviewed Vasquez about the murder of Carolyn see that he did not have a clue? Well, you would think. Yeah. And it's like, did they just lock him up because he confessed without, like, looking into anything? I mean, it could be what they wanted was just that quick open and closed case, and that's what they had until, you know, more things happen. Mm -hmm. That's what it felt like. So... Nonetheless, Detective Horgus continued his search for Susan Tucker's killer, but this time, Detective Horgus made the decision to look at murders throughout the whole state of Virginia to see if there were any patterns, aside from Susan Tucker and Carolyn Ham's murders. Mm -hmm. So that's when he came across multiple murders only a few months before Susan Tucker's December 1987 murder. In the same area? Well, it actually happened 100 miles southeast in Richmond, Virginia. Oh. Yeah. Also a city we have some connection to. One of our friends used to live there, so another place we would visit, walk around, probably Mm -hmm. not even... Well, I didn't know any of these things happened in either of these places. Yeah, it's, it's really insane. So the first murder in Richmond was discovered on September 19th, 1987. And the victim was Debbie David. She lived alone in a first floor apartment. And when she was found, her hands were tied and she was strangled. And there were multiple body fluid stains around her, just like actually the other two murders I mentioned. Um, and the killer broke in by cutting a hole in the screen of the first story window. Another reason I will never live on the first floor. Yeah. Terrifying. So, so far, all three of these cases have someone who broke in through the window by cutting out a portion of the screen, 
almost an identical crime scene. That's yeah. just crazy. It is crazy how serial killers or killers of any kind, mm-hmm. when they find something that works for them, that's just what they run with. I know. Like, this has worked the first time, I'm going to do it the next time. Mm-hmm. It's it's crazy to me. Yeah, and it's crazy because, like, you think about how he tried so hard not to leave any clues behind, but just the fact that he did things so similarly. The same way. Yeah, is what really stood out That's to detectives. That's crazy. Yeah. Two weeks after the September 1987 murder of Debbie David, and only a half a mile away, Dr. Susan Hellams was found dead by her husband on the floor of their bedroom closet. He had returned home when he discovered her partially clothed body. Her hands were tied. The same thing that same the, other, thing. the other ones. And the medical examiner also found that Dr. Hellams sustained other injuries, including a fractured nose, a blunt force injury to the lower lip and various bruises. And then also they found an injury consistent with a shoe, like a bruise that looked like a shoe on the back of her right leg. Oh my gosh. So she really put up a fight. Good for Um, her. Yeah. And the body fluid stains were there as well. Well, at this time, did they have DNA? When was DNA like a big thing? Well, in the U.S., there had never been a murder convicted of DNA by DNA at this point. Um, and that's just in the U.S. Oh, my god! So we'll talk about that a little more later. But so far... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, only- Nick. <laughs> oh, no, that's okay. <laughs> no, and so in England, that was the only country that had ever convicted someone off of DNA at this point. Wow. Yeah. Which is insane because 1987 is not that long ago. It's really not. Yeah. It's, it's kind of scary. Yeah, and you think if they had the body fluid stains, that's... Right there is pretty much all the information you need. Well, I know. Almost all the information you need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Susan Hallams, what do you know? The killer got in by cutting out a large portion of a second-story bedroom window. Oh, we're on the second floor now. <laughs> yeah, so he's moving up, <laughs> literally, which is so scary. Um, so far, all victims were white and between the ages of 30 and 35. They always have a type. I know. Uh, The third murder took place in a Richmond suburb. 15-year-old Diane Cho, and this this was the last murder that took place in Richmond before he went up back north to Northern Virginia to kill Susan Tucker. Is there any reason, I don't know if you'll get to this later, Mm -hmm. but that he said why he was in Richmond? Yeah, we're going to get to that. going to get to it. Awesome. (laughs) Well, not awesome, but you know. (laughs) I mean, we don't even know if they're technically connected yet. Oh, okay. (laughs) I'll just sit back and continue to listen to you. So, 15-year-old Diane Cho was murdered in her bedroom while her brother and parents slept nearby. Like the previous murders, hands tied, rope tied the same way. This time, the murderer did put a piece of duct tape across her mouth to keep her from crying. Um, which I know that's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking, Um, especially when she's right down the hall from her family. I know. So that's probably why he, you know, took that extra step, which is just so sick. Um, but there were male body fluids in that scene as well. Detective Horgus is investigating these murders, the murder of Susan Tucker, and he has now discovered three murders that occurred within three months before Susan Tucker's in Richmond. And a case that happened three years beforehand in Arlington to Carolyn Ham. Mm-hmm. So we're totaling five murders, and he's like, yeah, we definitely have something here. All of these cases are connected. Yeah. But Detective Horgus, he faced a tremendous hurdle in convincing his colleagues in mainly Richmond, but also Arlington, that the cases were connected. 
Um, and there's actually a term for the unwillingness to see connections in cases, and it's called linkage blindness. Very cool. Yeah, and it's a huge issue um, with like serial killer murder investigations mm-hmm. because someone, basically a detective will say, I really think that there's connections here. And the police, not always the police, it can be some other factor says no and we're not going to investigate it. Um, and, of course, when that happens, then they can kill more people. Yep. Mm-hmm. Then it takes years like it did with this one. Exactly. So, Detective Horgus believes that the Richmond police in particular were hesitant to see connections in the cases because Richmond, the Richmond cases all happened a few weeks apart and it's super close proximity. So they were just super weary of reaching. I guess they considered that a big reach at the time. Um, to consider the connection up in Northern Virginia. Which is crazy. If it's the same MO, you would think. I mean, I get the distance thing. I get mm-hmm. Northern Virginia and Richmond are about an hour and a half. To, yeah. can be two hours with the traffic <clears throat> on certain roads. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, if it's the same MO, you would think that would be something that you could connect easier. But you mentioned that connection blindness thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and it's it, like you said, it's it's pretty close to each other. Given the timeline in the cases and how similar he left the crime scenes, like, that is insane. Yeah. Um, so, just to me, like, researching this, the fact that they wouldn't even look at the possibility of the connection and were so hesitant, I, like, wanted to throw my computer out the window. Right? <laughs> just think of how many things they could have stopped if they had actually looked at a connection. I know. And, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. Always. But it's still frustrating. It is. Yeah. Dr. Horgus was, quote, the perfect man for this case because he was obsessed, end quote, according to author Paul Moans. Detective Horgus knew something was wrong, and Paul Moans actually wrote a book about this called Stalking Justice, and it profiles the rapes and murders of all of the, these five women. Oh. Um, I didn't find the book in time. Like, I literally <laughs> found out about it last night, but I definitely want to look at it, and it does go into more detail um, of what happened. Dr. Horgus needed a, needed scientific proof that these were connected and he couldn't just go off of similarities. And that was becoming abundantly clear by all of the setbacks from the two police departments. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, in 1987, when Susan Tucker was murdered, DNA evidence was still in its infancy. It's crazy how far we've come in this amount of time, too. It really is. And, and it's thank frustrating when have. you think of the cases back then that had all of this clear evidence mm-hmm. and none of it could be... I mean, we just didn't know what to do with it at the time. Exactly, yeah. The first time DNA evidence was used in a criminal case was only a year earlier in England. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Horgus decided to try this new DNA testing by sending the body fluids from Susan Tucker's case to a lab in New York. Forensic scientists were concerned that the samples that he was going to send were degraded or contaminated, but luckily they weren't. Oh, good. Because that was a huge part of this. That's Um, a huge thing you hear in cases back then, too, where, again, we didn't really know what DNA was, so mm -hmm. people were just walking through the crime scene. Like, have you seen that meme where it's, like, back then in, like, the 1700s, like, oh, there's a lot of blood in here. Clean it up. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't seen that, but I need to show it. I'll send you it. Okay, cool. But, yeah, just (laughs) no one knew what to do with the blood. It was just Mm -hmm. a mess at the time. And now we have all this science that can actually tell us, like, 
all of the things that gross can come out of a person Mm -hmm. can be related back to a person. Exactly. Yeah. It's insane. I wanted to just kind of talk a little bit about DNA and the process of that um, because this was a revolutionary time, this case for DNA testing in the U.S. and it helped solve so many murders. Basically, I thought that scientists just like put something under a microscope and looked at the DNA, but there's actually a four-step process. Number one. I don't think we learned this in school. I know. (laughs) I kind of wish we did. I know. Yeah, I'd be a lot more interested. Yeah. So number one, you isolate it. And this is like the DNA. Mm -hmm. You isolate it. Number two, you cut it up. Number three, you generate profiles slash patterns on the x-ray film. And that's what makes DNA unique. Okay. And then number four, you compare the components to other DNA to see if they're the same pattern and they're from, therefore from the same source. Okay. And, you know, the one thing is it can take a little while for results to come in, but it's so worth it because then you'll know if you're oh, dealing with 100%, a serial killer. 100%. Detective Horgus needed proof and he turned to this forensic lab where scientists were examining stains found on Susan Tucker's sheets and bedding. The semen stains from her bedding came from someone with typo blood and the PGN1 enzyme profile, which matches 13% of the population. I didn't even know you could find out the blood type from that bodily fluid. I know. It's crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. I mean, and the fact that they know that, I mean, it's still a few million people, 13% of the population, (laughs) but that's better from where they were before. Definitely. So Detective Horgus looked at the body fluids um, at Carolyn Ham's home after the murder. She's the very first person mm-hmm. to get murdered. And the same enzyme profile and blood type were found there, too. There we go. Yeah. So next, scientists focused on the hair found at Susan Tucker's crime scene. They looked at the hair through a microscope and found that the hair was Negroid in origin, meaning the suspect was African American. Oh. Yeah. So they could tell that just from a strand of hair. That's also crazy. Yeah. And it turns out three years earlier, at the time of the ham murder, the African American man wearing a ski mask had gone on a raping spree throughout Ham's neighborhood and he was never apprehended. Oh, wow. Yeah. The same day that Carolyn Ham's body was found, someone in Carolyn's exact neighborhood was raped by a man in a ski mask matching that same description. That's terrifying. I know. In the same neighborhood and everything. Yeah. And this was 1984. So this was like at the beginning of him terrorizing people. Yeah. Before um, people really knew what was happening. Mm-hmm. So now police are starting to finally believe that the cases could possibly be connected. But they needed help. So where did they go? The Richmond and Arlington police sought help from the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit in Quantico, Virginia. Man, that is my dream job. <laughs> Before yeah. Mindhunter and everything, that was just the dream job. I know, and how convenient is it that it's just down the road in Quantico? Yep. Um, they went to this FBI Behavioral Science Unit, and this unit had interviewed hundreds of serial killers to see what similarities existed in their psychological makeup. And through this, they learned a number of important things about this serial killer in particular. Mm-hmm. So number one, they fa- they believe that the killer attacked victims in their homes. That fact showed that he stalked them first and he knew precisely when to strike. Oh my God, terrifying. Yeah, which, I mean, they were oh, always terrifying. alone. So, Because I was wondering that with the younger girl who was right down the hall from her parents, mm-hmm. I was wondering how he knew which 
window to go in. Yep. Like, how was he not going to the other sibling's room? How was he not going to the parents' room? Mm-hmm. So how was he knowing when to? They were yes. probably, you know, that he knew when they were going to bed. Yep. He planned out everything. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah. They also determined that the killer was between ages 18 and 30 and quiet and oh. alone. Which I feel like is probably most serial killers, but yeah. And then he was also troubled. He had a troubled relationship with his mother and started his crime career with arson. Oh, okay. Yeah, and finally, they strongly believed that he lived or worked close to where he committed his first crime. Ooh, so he lived in like the Arlington area. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank God we weren't alive during the beginning of all this. Seriously, we could have been at a night out in Arlington. But do you wonder (laughs) if we ever, like, were taking our Uber or doing our nice nightly strolls after a night out and Mm -hmm. passed maybe one of the places where something like this happened? I mean, it's definitely possible. And we would have literally no idea because I didn't know about any of this until now. And we've been in quarantine for the past year. Mm -hmm. So we haven't been out for the past year. Yeah. It's crazy. Given the fact that um, they believe that whoever did this lived in close proximity, the killer committed crimes in areas that they felt most comfortable is what the FBI said. That makes sense. They know the layout. mm -hmm, Definitely somewhere um, that he was very familiar with. Also, the two Arlington and three Richmond murders were in close proximity, like I just said. Mm -hmm. But this information from the FBI wasn't enough for Horgus. Even though it was helpful, he needed more. As they always do. Yep, and he was truly obsessed with this case. He was doing the most. Um, So Horgus drove to Green Valley in Arlington, now called Knock. Have you heard of that? I haven't. How have we we not heard of this? I'm I'm thinking, I mean, I looked at a map, and it's like a very, it's like a small pocket of Arlington. Is it near where our friend used to live? Maybe. I think so. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) We'll look later. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe she knows. Yeah. And this is where the rapist committed these assaults. And he believed that the rapist um, lived in that area, given all the information from the FBI about the killer. And as he drove through Green Valley, he began looking around for a young man that he started remembering had been from this exact neighborhood who he had dealt with in the system before. Ooh. Yeah. It was a young man named Timmy. Okay. And he could picture Timmy. He could picture his face. He had dealt with him in the system, like I said, and this kid from those the exact from the exact same area, but he could not remember the boy's full name or any other information. Uh, yeah. It's frustrating. It was literally on the tip of his tongue. He just could not remember. Detective Horgus could not get Timmy out of out of his head and he didn't see Timmy while on his drive. I mean, obviously, it's yeah. kind of a long shot. So he went back to his office and ran all these names in the, in the computer to see when people with the name Timmy in that area had been released from jail. And suddenly he came across the name Timothy Wilson Spencer. There we go. Literally, how did he do that? It just came to his mind. Like, it was, that's insane. Yeah. That was just something he was meant to, you know, when you just have those moments. Yep. And yeah. thank God he had that moment. Mm-hmm. So, Timothy Wilson Spencer was born on March 17, 1962. He was born on St. Patrick's Day, but the world was not lucky to have Timothy Spencer (laughs) in it. (laughs) And what's also crazy is St. Patrick's Day is coming up for us. I know. I spent probably an hour trying to find something about anything about Timothy's childhood. I could not find anything. All I found 
was that he was raised by a single mother and had a brother. And as a teenager, Spencer had a string of burglary convictions and even more surprising, as the FBI predicted, arson for setting his mom's car on fire. Oh, wow. But oh my, how how are they able to even figure that out? That's what just blows my how? mind and makes it just the coolest job ever. Ever. It's so specific. That is so specific. Yeah, and I mean, how common is that? That's, like, not a common thing, like, at all. Yeah, it's usually, like, the animal torture mm-hmm. when they're younger, and kind of the bedwetting's a big one, too. Yeah. But, yeah, arson's not one of the, at least, I haven't done research, so I can't, like, verify, but mm-hmm. I'm sure it's not one of, like, the top traits of, like, a young serial killer. Right, yeah, it's it's just so incredible that they were able to give that information. When Timmy was in the Richmond area, he was in a halfway house and he had just gotten out of jail. Okay. He was on probation. The halfway house was a short distance from where all of the Richmond murders took place as in walking distance. Oh yeah. Um, police looked at the halfway house sign out sheet records because they were required to sign in and out whenever they came or left. Yep. And they saw that Spencer was signed out during the exact time frames that the Richmond murders took place, all three of them. Oh, look at all of that falling into place. Mm-hmm. And this was shortly after he was released from jail for time served from late 90, 1984 to 1987, which is why there was a three-year gap and why he was in Richmond. Look at that timeline. Yeah. They also looked at the halfway house's sign-in, sign-out sheet, and they saw that Timothy was away visiting his mother in Arlington the week that Susan Tucker was murdered, which was his final murder. He got out of prison two weeks before the first murder took place in Richmond, and police were also correct that Spencer lived in the area of that first rape of Carolyn Ham and then the one of Susan Tucker in Northern Virginia because he was staying with his mom both of those times, and he was from that area. And Detective Horgus even went a step further and and connected that a series of burglaries and rapes took place in the same neighborhoods as the murders in each of those cities. When he noticed the connection, Horgus was able to trace the development of Spencer's method from his earlier sloppy abductions, where he was often unsuccessful, to in-home attacks that were where his control of the victims were far greater. And over time, he evolved from an amateur rapist to a cold-blooded, just awful human being. Jeez, terrifying. Truly scary. It really is. So in one of the rapes that Horgus looked into, a woman was awakened early in the morning by a man wearing a ski mask and armed with a knife. He threatened her, taunted her, and made her drink Southern Comfort, which I'm like- I wonder why. Yeah. Did you know what that was? Oh, yeah. I had no (laughs) idea what that was. I was like, is that like a meal at Cracker or like a drink at Cracker Barrel? <laughs> like, what is this? Um, it's so, an, yeah, Nora. I was going to explain what that was, but clearly I'm the only one here who doesn't know what that is. So uh, we'll just move right along. <laughs> um, but the reason why he did this is because he pretended that he was on a date with this woman. And Ew. that's what he would have with her. Like, that's what he wanted her to drink. It's so weird. Ew, red flag. Well, I guess at the time, you probably wouldn't think it is. If you think you're on a date, you're like, heck yeah, some drinks. Oh my goodness. So we can guess what happened after that. Sadly. Um, Yes. And then he left. Luckily, she did get out alive, though. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Timothy was finally arrested on January 20th, 1988. Within hours, they collected a blood sample, hair, and clothing for a forensic analysis. Awesome. Yep. 
Um, because at this point, like they knew that they were connected, but they, they didn't know for sure who it was. They just knew yeah. that everything was connected. And I, I could be wrong, but I don't think they had like a really great database at the time. Probably not. Yeah. So and they, even now the database is still kind of slim with if you're not in the system, you're not going to be found. They could mm-hmm. have all of your DNA, but if there's nothing to match it to. Exactly. Which is why Ancestry.com is becoming such a thing, like mm-hmm. with the Golden State Killer and them finding people based on that familial DNA. Mm-hmm. But yeah. yeah, back then, definitely didn't have that stuff. Yeah, it's truly, it's incredible how far we've come. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they took his blood sample, hair sample, and clothing for a forensic analysis. And when they collected debris from his jacket, they found glass fragments and they examined the glass particles that were on Spencer's jacket and compared it to the broken glass taken from Susan Tucker's home. Wow. And it was almost an exact match. Wow. Yeah. Because remember, Susan was murdered a month before, which yeah. is crazy that they got him that quickly. Yeah. Um, so Especially with how long he's kind of been evading them in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's kind of just all over the place. He's a mess. So blood from Spencer was compared to the fluid from Susan Tucker's crime scene, and that also matched. There we go. Yeah. On July 11th, 1988, Timothy Spencer went on trial for his life. This was the first time in the U.S. that DNA evidence was used in a serial murder case. Oh my gosh, in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, I don't want to use it's the word infamous. cool, but how cool. <laughs> yeah. And it took the jury less than seven hours to find Spencer guilty. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's quick. Yep. Have you ever been called for jury duty? I haven't. I kind of want to, but I want it to be like a really interesting case. I don't want it I to know. be like a traffic violation. I know. I was just going to say, yeah. it's like a speeding <laughs> ticket. I don't even want to hear it. <laughs> but yeah, just like imagine being on the jury for something like this mm-hmm. or like some just just interesting case that you can talk about afterwards. I know. And it's such a groundbreaking case, but I doubt people knew that at the time because when they're going into the jury duty, they don't know yeah. what's going to be presented. So that would be pretty cool. To that be would part be of cool. That. Yeah. He was sentenced to death. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I said that before, but he was. Does Virginia have, the de- Virginia has the death penalty? Yeah. Do we still have the death penalty? I think we do. Oh. Um, Because I I know a lot of states are starting to abolish it, so mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I mean, Virginia being a commonwealth, we kind of fall behind on a lot of the laws that are made. Yeah. Yeah, I'm almost positive we are, but I could be wrong. Oh, wow. Um, That's something we'll have to look up at some point. Yeah. But, of course, Spencer later appealed this order of his execution, and he gave seven reasons, which I don't want to bore you with all of them because some of them are so dumb. Like, (laughs) I'm like, you can't use that as a reason. I mean, one of them was that his trial counsel was ineffective, but they did try to help him. Yeah. He tried to say that he could appeal because he was actually innocent. Oh. I mean. Yeah, with all the evidence stacked against you. Right? It's like you literally can't say that you were innocent. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's going to work for you. Yeah. Good luck, but no. (laughs) So there was a few other reasons that were also just ridiculous, but the jury said, or, I'm sorry, the judge said, absolutely not. Like we have this hard evidence you're getting put down. Snaps for the judge. Yep. So on April 27th, 1994, which is three days after my birthday, yeah, <laughs> the year earlier, he was put to death. He didn't make a last statement, and on January 4th, 1989, David Vasquez was the guy who had confessed to Carolyn Ham's murder. Oh, yeah. I forgot about him. He was granted a full pardon for the murder of Carolyn Ham, and he was released after having served five years in prison. Oh, my God. I just, like, 
that blows my mind when people are in jail for so long mm-hmm. and then they're found innocent. Yeah. Especially like five years is a long time, but there are also people who have been in there for like 30 plus years and mm-hmm. then they're found to be innocent. I just, I can't even imagine. I know. And you know, I, I'm like, why would he confess then? Yeah. Was he coerced? Like what did he get a deal? I don't know. Some people also like to confess just because they like they just like the spotlight because mm-hmm. there's a lot of cases where it'll be a cold case. No one knows what's going on and people are confessing mm-hmm. just for that attention, just for something or just to be a horrible person. So the, per- like the victim's family can't have that closure that they're looking for. Yeah. But I, I don't get it. I, I couldn't find any other information on it. I was like, I want to know why, why did he do that? Yeah. I couldn't really find anything. Um, but he was released after the five years. Um, And I think, you know, the main takeaway from this whole case is that without DNA, it would have been impossible to to convict Timothy Wilson Spencer, this outside strangler. Wow. Yeah. That was incredible. Good job. Thanks. That's something I've, I just can't believe we've never heard about that. I know. I went down, I'm telling you, like a 10 hour rabbit hole. (laughs) I was just like, what? This happened here? Oh my gosh. Like I couldn't believe it. Cause you never hear about these things that happen, like those small things that happen. Well, this wasn't small, but like in the smaller towns, like Arlington is a smaller Mm -hmm. town. Richmond, I mean, it's big, but like the little parts of it are smaller towns. It's just things you don't hear about. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Richmond is kind of, it's a small world there. It is. Um, so the fact that it's never come up is just insane especially because we have this connection to arlington and we have this connection to richmond and just Mm -hmm. not knowing about it at all is what blows my mind i know it's i mean i'm so glad that this guy got caught oh definitely and i mean i have goosebumps right now even thinking about how close it was yes yes (laughs) and i'm sure like as we go through different states people are going to have that same feeling if they didn't know about a crime oh i bet Well, that was really good. Mm, Thanks. (laughs) All right. So what I'm going to talk about today is St. Albans Sanatorium. I probably mentioned this to you, but you know, I was, I started a ghost hunting club at my university, our university, and this was one of the places we went to investigate. Mm -hmm. Well, when I was part of my ghost hunting club, I was the historian. So my job was to look up the location we were going, get the history, get the hauntings, and I looked up St. Albans and I was too afraid to go. So I did not go. And I, <laughs> That's my girl. Oh, yeah. And I told my group, I was like, oh, I have like this big family reunion that I'm going to. My family reunion was me and my family went to the aquarium. Aww. So I did not go. They didn't have any huge stories from their time there. But, you know, I got a couple stories here. Nice. All right. So St. Albans Sanatorium is located in Radford, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And it is said, so that's about four-ish hours from us. Yeah. Um, it's said to be one of the most haunted places in Virginia and one of the most haunted on the entire East Coast. So St. Albans School for Boys was built in 1982. Um, it was founded as a Lutheran boys' school. Mr. Miles was the, hes- was the headmaster of St. Albans and was trying to build it into, you know, whatever kind of big school it could be. They mm-hmm. could accommodate 50 boys. Well, they gained their reputation as being one of the best sports schools in the area. So he would specifically choose boys who are rough, tough, aggressive, could really help their team win. Hmm. And with this reputation, no other schools in the area wanted to compete against St. Albans. But because of their incredibly competitive nature, this school had a lot of bullying. Mm. Bullying was incredibly common among the boys. And not even just common, but even encouraged. 
encouraged yeah. among the older boys, the teachers, the counselors. It was just a very rough school. And because of this hostile environment, a number of students completed suicide while attending St. Albans. Oh, no. Um, there were reported homicides, but there's no documentation of this. So mm-hmm. you can take the word of the people, but I wasn't able to find anything that kind of solidified that homicides have happened. Mm-hmm. So inevitably, the school shut down in 1911. So it stood for about 20-ish years. Mm-hmm. So it stood vacant for five years. And then in 1916, Dr. J.C. King reopened St. Albans as a psychiatric infirmary. The first four patients were admitted in January 15, 1916. And this was supposed to be this place that was top of the line, top notch for psychiatric care. Mm -hmm. You know, this was just, this was going to be the place that Virginia needed. Right. So it included a farm with a vegetable, like vegetable pasture, chicken pastures that people could farm, get outside, do some work. Yeah. So you would think that all sounded great. Um, The staff, though, had to work six days a week at the beginning because of how many new patients they started to receive. So they got their first four patients January 15th, and from Mm -hmm. there they just expanded insane. Wow. So it was considered advanced at the time for its experimental treatments. No. But as we know... Back then, what was considered advanced is now considered inhumane, cruel, unbearable. So some of, I'm going to go over some of the things that the patients were subjected to. Oh, I was starting to like this place when you talked about like the vegetables. And then now I'm like, oh no. So like I said, they um, had a lot of experimental treatments. So they were treated like the rats of kind of the community. So whenever there was a new treatment, it was tested on these patients because they were considered less than humans Mm -hmm. in a way. Um, They also perform lobotomies. So if you don't know what a lobotomy is or want a little update, it was invented by Antonio Igas Monez in 1935. Uh So it's a surgical procedure where the nerve pathways in the prefrontal lobe of the brain are severed from the other parts. So it was thought ideally that lobotomies would make a um, aggressive patient kind of more docile, kind of get them to be calm with their symptoms. Mm -hmm. Well, it was used for those treatments for schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, manic depression, and just a whole plethora of other illnesses. But it didn't do that nice, just kind of mellow you out. It pretty much messed with your brain. Yeah, you're severing an entire part of someone's brain. Exactly. So it didn't have like these nice effects. It just pretty much made the person brain dead. They also had insulin-induced comas. So they would give the patient too much insulin. They would just go into a coma. So made them docile. They also had electroconvulsive therapy, ECT. So that is when small electric currents are passed through the brain, triggering a brief seizure. Um, this was used to reduce and even reverse the symptoms of different mental illnesses. Well, it was believed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was believed that these currents could change the chemistry of the brain. So also used for schizophrenia, depression, mania, catatonia, aggression, and bipolar disorders. Wow. We had um, hydrotherapy sessions. So this was developed in Germany in the 1880s. Mm-hmm. And it's still used today, you know, for physical therapy. Water's just that great thing that people use to, you know, it helps right. them. Yeah. But not how they used it. So oh. they would wrap the patients in ice cold towels pretty much in a mummified way which obviously isn't good. They would be left to soak in hot and cold tubs for days, immobile for days. And I think of, have you seen American Horror Story? I've seen some episodes. So season two is, Mm -hmm. um, oh, what is it? Asylum. 
And so mm-hmm. it's there, they go into a psychiatric hospital kind of like this. And mm-hmm. that's one of the scenes I remember is them being in these incredibly hot bathtubs and just <sighs> there for days. Why would they think that that would possibly help someone? I, I have no idea. Like that would make anyone go crazy. You would think. Yeah. Um, they also would blast these patients with water from a fire hose. That's so nice. as you can assume, these treatments had many side effects. Many of these treatments left the patients brain dead, catatonic, permanently permanently disabled, or even dead. So the hospital was open for a while. So in 1945, the ratio from patients to doctors was 48, doc, 48 staff to 6,509 patients. So that's about one staff member per 135 patients. And oh out my of, gosh. Uh-huh. And out of those 48 staff members, only two were doctors. <laughs> so we're seeing, you know, just the great care they were getting. Wow. And again, suicides were very prevalent because these conditions are living and are just inhumane, barbaric, just mm-hmm. horrible. So it became recognized as a hospital in 1960, which is kind of weird that it was acting as a psychiatric infirmary and a psychiatric you know, hospital Mm -hmm. for all these years, and it wasn't fully recognized until 1960. So finally in the 1990s, it was closed. Um, It was relocated right off of 81 um, and became part of the Carillon Health System and renamed to the New River Medical Center. The um, building was completely evacuated in 2003, completely just left, Mm -hmm. and it was a gift to Radford University Foundation in 2004. So it's currently owned by a man named Timothy Gregory. He was once a patient at the hospital. So what he hmm. wants to do is kind of restore it to its original glory, but in a way that doesn't reflect that really dark past that it had. So mm-hmm. he wants to make it a research and enlightenment center. Um, and in order to do this, they offer ghost tours, Halloween activities, oh events, Nora, <laughs> so that they can gain some money to do that. Um, but I did read somewhere else that it's currently being remodeled to be a restaurant and hotel. So your hotel Ooh. rooms will be the cells and you'll eat in the cafeteria. Don't know if I would be down for that. Yeah. But we could go get lunch there. <laughs> um, but I did have my friends. So my one of my best friends went to Radford mm-hmm. and she was in an organization. And one of her friends in the organization went to St. Albans to do like a little tour And she said that she walked through, it was super creepy, she felt really creeped out, and she left with scratches all over her. No. So, naturally... Don't tell me that. (laughs) No. So, naturally, being who I am, I had to go see it. So, my family and I, we had to go down to Kentucky when my brother was um, in the military. Mm -hmm. And we went down, and we were coming back up, and I was somehow able to convince my mom and dad that we had to stop by St. Albans. Wow. They're saints. Oh, I know. I know. So my dad wasn't super psyched, but my mom was (laughs) super psyched. So we drive up and you just come up to this huge, ominous building. And it just, you can just feel the creep factor and just, it's, it was a, it was a scary place. I can imagine. So there were a ton of just, I mean, you look at it and you know, it's haunted. Yeah. And you think about all the disturbing things that happened in that building over like a hundred years. All the horrible. It has to be haunted. And how many people died on the property just leaving behind, you know, just this horrible energy and this sad and depressing energy. So that leads me to the hauntings. So like I said, it is supposedly one of the most active haunted and paranormal locations on the East Coast. 
People go in and they'll hear voices, screams, conversations. Some people have been pushed, touched. Um, there's intelligent knocking, which if I say knock once if you're a male, twice if you're a female, once for yes, two for no, the knocks correspond with your questions. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I know I'm getting goosebumps. Do. Um, people have seen shadow figures, full body apparitions. They've heard footsteps. Objects have been pushed, moved, and even levitated. <sighs> Um, supposedly there have been satanic rituals that have taken place here because, you know, every haunted location needs that. Yeah. So there have been sacrifices, summoning rituals, and guardian rituals. I don't know what any of that means, <sighs> but that's happened I'm there. I'm so glad you didn't Google that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was something I should have yeah. Googled. Um, and there have been a number of entities seen at this location. So one is called the Crawler, which I literally hate more than anything in the world. It's a humanoid entity who is said to follow, stalk, and even charge people who enter the location. Oh, no. Hellhounds. So, like, dog-type creatures have been seen mm-hmm. there. A goat man. And a, a muffin man. man. Oh, I'll get to the goat man. Do you know the muffin man? <laughs> oh, yes. No. So you know how I told you they did Halloween events. Mm-hmm. So one of the actors who worked at the Halloween events would dress up as a bloody muffin man. Oh, no. Well, an entity became the doppelganger of him and just walks around as this creepy, muff- bloody muffin man. Nope. Nope. And nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to go over some of the haunted rooms. So there are two... I didn't name these, but they're known as the suicide bathrooms. So there are two bathrooms in the building that are known as the suicide bathroom, one with a broken mirror and one with a pipe above the door. So those are the two bathrooms. So one of these was where hydrotherapy was conducted. It wasn't specified which one these room, like which one of the rooms the hydrotherapy was conducted. Mm -hmm. Um, It was rumored that four people have completed suicide in this room. And one of them with the broken mirror as known as Rebecca's bathroom. Ooh. So Rebecca was a patient at the hospital who lost her baby after being impregnated by a member of the hospital staff. She was said to have kept the baby in a jar in her room. And after a week of her keeping it, the hospital staff found out and took it from her, which led her to hang herself in the bathroom. Oh, my gosh. Um, which is really sad. So yeah. people have spoken to her. People have had, com- like, intelligent conversations with her in the suicide bathroom. The bathroom that has the broken mirror, it is said that one lady broke the mirror in the bathroom, which is still broken, and swallowed the glass in order to... Oh. And then the one with the pipe in the bathroom, again, mm-hmm. someone used that to hang themselves. So there's Jeez. a bowling alley down in the basement, and mm-hmm. I had a friend who had explored St. Albans before our group Mm-hmm. me excluded, went. <laughs> and he said they were down in the bowling alley and mm-hmm. they were at one end near where you would bowl. And mm-hmm. there was, an, I guess, an entity down by the pins. Mm-hmm. So they were knocking, asking questions, and mm-hmm. the entity was knocking back to them. Oh my so they gosh. would say, you know, one for yes, two for no. It was knocking back intelligently. Um, it is said to be haunted by two female spirits. One is named Allie and one is Gina Renee Hall. So Allie oh. was supposedly a daughter of one of the hospital patients. Um, so she's just said to kind of roam around the bowling alley. Mm-hmm. And there's Gina Renee Hall. She was um, supposedly murdered on June 28th, 1980 near St. Albans. Mm-hmm. So there's a road right off of St. Albans and it says she was killed right there and Oh my Her gosh. spirit still haunts this area. Wait, wait, let me get this straight. Wait, so you didn't go with the group in college, but then you wanted to go with your parents, like your family later? Okay. Why? So, I, Why did you? <laughs> I went with my parents and I looked at it. Okay. Well, my friends went inside. 
I did not go inside. Okay, good. That I makes s- me feel better. I was like, look, there's some evil demons in you right now. Stop. <laughs> so no, I stayed in the car. We looked at it, felt the scariness from our okay, car good. and then left. Thank goodness. My group legit went inside. Yeah, no. No. Okay, good. No. <laughs> also in the bowling alley, people have reported seeing red glowing eyes. Oh. <laughs> So there's an electroshock therapy room and um, a paranormal group called 333 AM Paranormal received an EVP. An EVP is electronic voice phenomenon. Mm. So an EVP is a recording you get on your phone or any recording device you use. You may be able to hear it at the moment. You may not. So what we would do in my ghost hunting group is we would go into a room, have someone's phone recording, and just let it record for our whole session. Mm -hmm. And we would listen back, and sometimes you would hear replies to your questions that you didn't hear when you were in the room. So that's what an EVP is, um, or you just hear it. So they said that they heard a noise that seemed to say Deborah in the electroshock therapy room. Oh, my gosh. I couldn't find anything on Deborah, but that's interesting. So the boiler room, this is the main reason I did not go to St. Albans. Uh So I cannot remember where I found it because I did this research five years ago and I don't know where that research is. (laughs) But a medium went in and walked around St. Albans and said Mm -hmm. that she felt a spirit powerful enough to possess the living in the boiler room. Oh my God. That was the point where I was like, absolutely not. I am not going here with this malevolent spirit down in the boiler room. Mm -hmm. So women are told that they should not go into this room alone because women have been raped and murdered in this room, supposedly by a man named Smokey. And Smokey would drag the females out of this room because the boiler room led right out to the back where the dumpsters were. So I didn't go in there. Good. I didn't go in at all. Yeah. Okay, good. (laughs) Some of the girls in my group went in to see if it was the whole thing with just females going in by themselves. Mm -hmm. And they said that they didn't get any negative feelings in there at the time. At the time. So that's good for them. Okay. Um, Another man who did some investigation said that he saw a goat man in the corner of this room. So a man who, body of man, head of goat kind of thing. That's so creepy. And he said he saw this guy spirit shadow behind the machinery and um it hissed at him and then he smelt wet fur oh my goodness terrifying that is so creepy there's another really fun room called the rocker room so this room let me guess a rocking chair yes (laughs) nora literally just a rocking chair (laughs) and sometimes it'll rock on its own no (laughs) yes yeah um there's a whistle room Um, which is also now kind of the whole hallway on the second floor. So there's an entity that'll whistle a tune back at you. So you can whistle something at it, and it'll try to whistle the tune (sighs) back to you. Not an echo, mind you, just a whistle back. So it's believed that this is a child who had died when it was a psychiatric Mm -hmm. infirmary, when he was the child of a patient who was there. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also the alcoholics ward, which is what it was called. Mm -hmm. The smell of dog fur has been noticed here, and this is where people have seen the hellhounds. (gasps) terrifying. Oh my gosh. Um, we also have Jacob's room. So Jacob was believed to be a patient who was only about three years old. Mm-hmm. And his story is that he was in this room. He was the child of a patient. There was another child named Donald. Mm-hmm. And so Jacob was in the room and apparently Donald had assaulted him, which resulted in his death. Oh. You can hear a child's voice saying, get me out. People oh will bring gosh. him toys to kind of, you know, apparently little kid ghosts enjoy toys. So yeah. there are just a ton of toys in this room for him. So I, of course, had to look at some videos and YouTube videos, which I'll link in our show notes for what I watched. But a group called Paranormal Encounters caught 
a ton of stuff when they were here. So they caught some EVPs, which I explained earlier, and mm-hmm. they also used a spirit box. So a spirit box, I read somewhere, is like a modern-day Ouija board, which I will never use a Ouija board. Yeah, no. But we used a spirit box when I was doing investigations. So mm-hmm. it's pretty much a device that scans a ton of different radio frequencies at once. Mm-hmm. And you'll just hear it sounds very, very choppy. But if you hear a voice over multiple radio stations, so for a couple seconds, it means that a spirit was strong enough to just kind of get some words out. <gasps> It's, it's, it's really cool. So it's really creepy, but, um, so this paranormal encounters group, which is their name, they were Mm -hmm. using a spirit box and they heard the words, I'm dead in the woman's, uh, woman's dormitory. They heard an unknown hum, some footsteps, um, an EVP said, we know India's story. So India was one of the investigators who was on the trip. So what kind of story? We didn't really find that out. Yeah. Um, (laughs) She asked, what's your name? And uh-huh. the EVP said, go away. They asked, are you here with us? The uh-huh. EVP said, I'm in front of you. No. My baby and me. No. So the investigator believed that this was Rebecca and her baby. No. Oh, I know. I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> Another one after they said, you know, I'm in front of you. Connor, who was one of the investigators, said, how do you do? Mm-hmm. And the voice said, see you. <gasps> So India claimed, so India, one of the investigators, was sitting in a chair in one of the rooms listening to the spirit box, Mm -hmm. and she immediately freaked out, and she said that all of a sudden she saw something next to her move. So she saw a shadow get up off the chair, and after that she just began to sob uncontrollably. She believes that it was Rebecca, just her sad energy there, and it just took over India. That's so sad. Yeah. So. It, oh my gosh, terrifying. Yeah. And if there's just so much emotion in this place, it makes sense that she would feel that. Mm-hmm. So they went to the grand staircase after this, and they heard a woman's voice come through the spirit box. So they asked, who did India see upstairs? Mm-hmm. And they turned on the spirit box. And then a voice said, what was that? So they think that was <gasps> referring to the spirit not understanding what the spirit box was. And one of the investigators, either India or Connor, asked, can you tell us your name? They got an EVP of Russell. Then Connor held up two fingers and asked, how many fingers am I holding up? The EVP said two. (gasps) He tried to do it again with three fingers, but they weren't able to get any solid evidence from that. Then India and Connor introduced themselves, and they got a response saying, hi, I'm dead. No. (laughs) Yes. No. Yeah. So they quickly moved on from there. Um, They next (laughs) went down into the bowling alley, and they only picked up footsteps. So that was what paranormal encounters captured at this location. Wow. Then I went over what 3.31 or 3.33 a.m. paranormal received, which was that EVP of Deborah. Mm-hmm. And then we have Virginia paranormal investigators. So they were another group who went to St. Albans. Yeah. Um, when they were upstairs kind of setting up all of their cameras in their little headquarters area, they caught movement of a figure down in the bowling alley where they had one of their cameras set up. Let me guess. They go down there. They did. No. But they didn't catch much. Okay. So um, they ended up going into the boiler room, and they're talking about the boiler room and telling us, like, Smokey, like, Mm -hmm. to smoke, which I guess is how he got his name. Yeah. And they don't remember seeing cigarettes down there when they first stepped in. And then they look over at a pipe, and their cigarettes lined up against the pipe. Oh, my gosh. So that was kind of weird. They also played the flashlight game. So the flashlight game is, we also played this, you take Mm -hmm. a flashlight that you screw the top on and off, that's Mm -hmm. where you put the batteries in. Yeah. If you unscrew it just slightly, you can touch it to turn it on and touch it to turn it off. Oh. So this will be used to play the flashlight game. So Mm -hmm. we've played it before where we ask the spirit, 
turn on this light if you're here. Turn it off if you're here. Turn it on, turn it off. You know, you yeah, kind of try you're to... communicating with Yes, them. it's a perfect way to communicate. Mm-hmm. So this group, um, Virginia Paranormal Investigators, played the flashlight game. And the flashlighters responded accordingly. So they would say, turn on the silver flashlight, it would turn on. Oh. They'd say, turn on the pink flashlight, it would turn on. Then they would wait a minute and say, all right, turn off the pink one. Pink one will go off. Oh my gosh. So they played this. They got some really good responses down in the boiler room. They also heard murder twice. No. And when they were also down there, they heard the beginning of a sentence that they couldn't figure out, but the end of the sentence said, over the fence. So remember how I told you in the boiler room, they believe that Smokey would bring the mm-hmm. women outside into the dumpster. Yeah. Over the fence. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. <laughs> um, one of the hallways on the second floor, there were a group of investigators up there and mm-hmm. they asked, how many are here in our group standing on the floor? Mm-hmm. The EVP said five, which is the exact number of oh, investigators so on crazy. that floor at the time. They heard a woman's voice and a whisper in the suicide bathroom. Austin, another investigator, said that he had a conversation with a spirit in one of the bathrooms, though he didn't specify which bathroom it was, but it was one of the two suicide bathrooms. He said he asked what kind of music the male spirit liked, and the spirit said blues. Wow. Um, Something moved their camera when it was in the suicide bathroom. So they had put it in the room that the bathroom connects to and went about the house, Mm -hmm. and the camera was moved and bumped. No one was up there. They don't know how it was moved and bumped, and it stopped recording when it was bumped. So they weren't able to get any other information from it. And it looks like something was pacing back and forth. They could see a shadow that was pacing. That would have bolted. (laughs) I know. So they went into Donald slash Jacob's room, Mm -hmm. the little boy's room, and they did the flashlight method again, and it responded multiple times. They went into the lobotomy room, which also was like, I guess, the um, Lutheran boys' cafeteria. Mm. Um, They did the flashlight thing. It it you know, did it again. Mm -hmm. And one guy asked, should I not be in here? I feel a little anxious. The EVP said, watch. Then that same guy felt touched (gasps) and he felt incredibly lightheaded and pretty much had to leave the room. Um, Possible orbs are seen on the monitors. So they believe that orbs are spirits. Mm -hmm. So little orbs in pictures or orbs floating is said to be a spirit. Mm -hmm. Some of them they disputed as it could possibly be dust, but some of them they didn't have anything that it could have been. So I thankfully didn't experience anything because I didn't go in. Good. (laughs) But with all of these experiences, it's really easy to see why St. Albans has been labeled one of the most haunted locations on the East Coast. Yeah, absolutely. That I have goosebumps all over my body. We're gonna have to drive by. I have to show you what it looks like. Maybe we can like just. I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready. I'm scared already. We'll drive by. We'll test it out that way. And then one day we'll be brave enough. We'll go inside. Go in? Yes. What if I just like tape a GoPro to you and then I'll stand outside? Girl, I am not going in alone. (laughs) We'll go with like a Halloween tour and it'll be great. And then we'll think about it. And then we'll be able to report back. That's true. And we'll do it together. We'll be fine. Okay. I mean, you're probably going to have to carry me if I pass out. Okay. Okay, cool. That's a risk right. I'm willing to take. Deal. <laughs> All right. Well, those are two incredibly creepy things in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And one, yours, that I literally didn't even know about. I know. No, I had no clue. So, I mean, I didn't even really know about the Radford one. I knew that there was an in, abandoned um, psychiatric hospital, but that's all I knew. Yeah, it's so, pretty creepy. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for listening to our first episode. Thank you so much for sticking it out. We really appreciate it. We would love to hear any feedback from you. We would love mm-hmm. to hear from you. You can message us at a scary state podcast at gmail.com. 
Yeah. And if you have any ideas or you have any scary things that happened in your state, feel free to email us. We are going to be looking for suggestions. I mean, there's a ton of states to choose from. So we definitely will need suggestions too. So, and even if you're out of the US, let us know some creepy stuff that are happening there. And maybe we can do an episode that covers something right outside of the states. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, again, thank you so much. Keep an eye out for any social media that we will eventually get together. <laughs> yeah, so until That's then, stay, stay scary. Stay scary. Stay scary.